for some reason I keep thinking Emissaries of Xanathar, which is not a Persian Emperor. <laughs> but please don't correct me so that I continue the whole day wondering. Yeah, the- Xerxes Guide to Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Chill Out Room in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 123 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about creating interactive environments for your encounters. But first, the rogue traders treat the campaign like a mid-season episode of Lost, in which they briefly advance the plot but really just screw around talking and paranoidly checking off boxes on their to-do list in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the Whirling Dervish bounces around the battlefield in the Character Creation Forge. So just a quick reminder, we're still gathering stories of your gaming triumphs. So any tales of good campaigns, fun above-the-table talk that you've got. It's really a counterpoint to our RPG Horror Stories episode. You can go ahead and send those to at TPTCast or uh, TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And this is probably your last chance to get them in before we start recording that episode, so... Please help. Or else. No, no, or else we run out of material. <laughs> or we have to make them up. <laughs> or we have to institute a second award show. <laughs> We're just going to have to, like, who wrote in this uh, story of triumph? Roll on the tables in Xanathar's guide. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's Knut. <laughs> <laughs> this one comes from something numbers on Reddit. <laughs> Torvald. <laughs> All right, speaking of silly names, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And the crew of the His Enduring Light have rescued the stricken Chartist vessel Ambition from a warp reef, fought through all the demons and cultists that came with it, and reached the relative safety of the bridge. Which means it's time for a nap. Yeah, <laughs> having cost them a hundred some odd armsmen and their Seneschal tricks, they, yeah, basically took an episode off. We didn't intend to initially, but, you know, you take uh, not wanting to lose, well, actually, not being able to afford to lose any more armsmen, mm-hmm. plus knowing that warp wisps are out there, which we can't hurt except by punching them with ungent covered fists. Mm-hmm. Plus, we haven't actually been able to get back to the ship to revive uh, our Seneschal, which means that Brian has no character to play. Well, he had Captain Zarkov, <laughs> the, the leader of Company oh, 6. Right, who loves potato. Right. <laughs> uh, plus paranoia. We took things very, very slowly, and then, you know, an entire four-hour session elapsed without us actually accomplishing much. Yeah, so (laughs) first you confirmed there were no obvious signs of warp taint in the survivors uh, who are with you in the bridge. I think we did that like four times, right? Because Doc, the heretic, was like, oh, yeah, and I can't find any signs of warp taint. And we were like, well, we don't believe you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was like, okay, so they don't have any surface. Have you checked their blood? (laughs) You did? Okay. Use my data slate. Right. (laughs) I was like... No, I want to see you do it. uh, You you then came to firm up your suspicion that the the ambition was stranded due to uh, deliberate tampering. So you had kind of initially taken a pass... Um, and and thought that, but then you really got through to the sequence of events. Yeah, although at this point we still don't know 
who sabotaged it, right? Well, you know it was crew members. Like, the crew members had to be involved, but you don't know who put them in motion or why. Right. We did get to learn a little bit about Lord Captain Duhon Roth because we are basically sitting around with 30-odd members of his bridge crew. Right. You also uh, followed the Tactica Draco and established a perimeter, um, giving you a chance to rest that night. Yeah, I think what we actually did was the only way to hurt these warp wisps is with the psyker. So flare, go outside, stand outside the door <laughs> and handle them. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cover you, I guess. Yeah, we'll we'll handle the heretics. Right. You handle the warp wisps. <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> you had to return to the hangar to collect flare. If you recall, oh, flare right. was actually he wasn't even with us. Yeah, just that's why it was so bad the first time. Right. Right. Just due to the scheduling of, of players missing sessions. Right. We're like, oh, we, we leave the psyker on the ship. Like, yeah. we, we don't need him. Well, I think. There was an in-fiction reason, and that was you didn't know how he was going to react to the warp wash. Um, so you wanted that to fade a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. yeah, so you had to go collect them. Right, and the out-of-character reason was that he Angelo wasn't there. Wasn't there. Right. And also the other in-character reason is that we don't like him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then finally you made a decision um, to do what you should have done this session and investigate the ship's special cargo that was uh, being stored in the primary chapel um, once the warp weirdness sort of dissipates right a kilometer away in the belly of the ship um that should be pretty easy to get to and we'll find out what happens next next week so this week we're talking about filling the room um with water is this is this a trap yeah it's a good one yeah or with with sand that's even worse right because then you can kind of stand on it but then you sink into it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or with money so that you can swim in it like scrooge mcduck yeah although it turns out that you fail your rolls and you suffocate right yeah uh no we're gonna let listener jason uh explain what filling the room is because this comes from uh one of his questions via email So he says, I have trouble setting up the room my encounters are in. I don't want it to feel like an empty room just for fighting, but I also don't want to describe everything down to the crack in the ceiling. I want my players to use the environment around them more, but I'm having trouble figuring out how to make that environment. Any advice would be great. Obviously, the crack in the ceiling is where the water comes from. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the sand or the money. Right. But if it's the money, don't fill the crack, obviously. (laughs) Just let the money flow down, right? I mean, it's, you're sitting on the well, gold I mean, mine. Well, you melt the gold down and pour molten gold through the crack. And oh, then you get double yeah. the hazard. Or you you just hold your bag of holding in front of it. Oh, yeah. And then that, collect it and leave. That's genius. <laughs> All right. But Jason is really asking us two questions here. First, uh, he's asking, how do you set the scene so players understand the environment? And then second, how do you encourage the players to mechanically interact with it? All right, so let's tackle the first question first. Setting the scene here is really only a problem when you're in combat. Because in, in a social encounter, it's usually pretty apparent what you have to deal with. You walk into a shop, and it's a traditional shop. You don't need to describe every single thing that's available for sale. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, players assume there's a counter in the mm-hmm, shop, right. right? Like, they assume there's, like, a lock on the door. Uh, if you're in a tavern, players always assume that they have ale, right? Like, there's never a question if you can uh, ask the the barmaid for a drink. There's, Of course there's a barmaid, even if she wasn't mentioned. But as soon as you get into combat, it's like, oh, no, this is just a, a blank room that I has a grid on it, and I can't imagine anything. 
Right, even if you were previously in a dank dungeon where, like, the floor is made of stone tile and there's moss growing over it and, like, there, um, there's obvious, like, period molding on uh, every single door entry. As soon as you step into this room, players are like, I don't know what's here. I have no idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Minds go blank. Dice roll. <laughs> Um, so one way to do this is just to force them to interact with the environment. That's, you know, make the environment like part of a puzzle that needs to be solved um, in the middle of combat. So like, you know, the undead horde, the zombies won't stop flowing into the room until you align the runes of warding properly. And then they've got to run around the room and collect the runes of warding and assemble them and figure that out and put them in the right place and all that stuff. So obviously in that instance, when you're describing the room, you'll probably mention that there are in fact runes on the walls. Right. You're not going to mention, oh, these are the warding runes and then they need to be aligned properly. Right. But you'll probably mention that there are symbols on the walls. Right. But but this is really a different type of encounter, right? Because I think what Jason is asking us is more around how do you add scenery to your traditional combat encounters to spice them up, right? To make them different from room to room. Well, you don't need to lay out every single thing right off the bat. You can start off with a general impression of what the room looks like. And of course, you know, we use room here to just talk about the the setting of the encounter. Obviously, it doesn't necessarily need to be a a 30 foot by 30 foot cube. Yeah, it it can be a a two mile by two mile wide um, battlefield. (laughs) You know, like that that doesn't matter. Right. Or a a cliff and a rope bridge or another cliff. Exactly. Um, So once you've Describe the room in sort of its general terms, right? Like, it's a crumbling sanctuary where a dark ritual took place and a few profane icons still litter the floor. Mm-hmm. You then prompt the players for their input. Right, and those adjectives that you have thrown out give them some purchase when trying to figure out what questions to ask and what input to give, right? You said the crumbling sanctuary. We're great. Now you know it's probably some sort of stonework right. already. You know that there are probably handholds or something. It's probably been empty for a while. Right. Uh, you said sanctuary, which means that it probably is defensible. Right. Um, it might have an altar or a dais or something like that. Right. And those are great questions for them to then ask. Oh, it's a sanctuary. Is there a dais or an altar or something? Right. And you can say yes or no. And it doesn't sound like you're making something up on the fly. Yep. Um, and you can have them ask those questions or you can just ask them to fill the room. Mm-hmm. Right. So ask your players, what does their character notice? Well, I notice that there's an altar right um that has a chalice on it okay great there's an alternate chalice um i noticed that the room is lit by uh two braziers that are glowing with a pale green light and i think if you're worried about using this in in a game that uh doesn't necessarily have a lot of player control of the narrative uh i think go ahead and try it and and see how your group responds to it like i think of in our dark sun game that's a game that's it's fairly gritty you know we don't get to decide a a lot of things because usually all the odds are against us Mm -hmm. but when angelo uh put together an arena combat scenario for us he let us design the the arena (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we made it gritty and hard on ourselves. <laughs> it had a moat of lava. Because <laughs> we're dumb. <laughs> but it didn't, at least for me, it didn't take away the feeling that um, we're unprepared for what the world has to throw at us. Right, you know? right. 
Um, and of course, if we hadn't made it difficult for us, he would have then gone in and added details afterwards to make oh, it more yeah. difficult. And, right? and it might have been even worse than what we had come up with. Which is why you put in the mode of lava. <laughs> <laughs> There's gamesmanship at work. Oh, oh, that's enough. Ooh, you've yeah. already punished yourself enough. Games like Phoenix Dawn Command uh, do this like just within the mechanics. Like in every fight, um, they have the concept of the torch, which is a which is the um, card that's passed around between players to indicate whose turn it is. Um, but on the torch, you write um, elements that are present in the scene that you can interact with. Um, and the player generally, like the the GM will put a couple, and then the players each add to it as well. Mm-hmm. And if you do interact with it some way in the narrative, like an, an item listed on the torch, then you get a small bonus to uh, your next action. Right. And the benefit of all this is that you're forcing players to imagine it themselves, right? When you ask for a detail, they they have to at least picture the general and then find a detail to share, right? And that detail could be as small as um, the uh, the walls are actually made of obsidian, not stone. Okay, whatever. Not something you can interact with, but still a detail, still a piece of the narrative that they've contributed that is uh, is a great way of pulling them in. Well, then I know that this must be a volcanic environment in in order to create obsidian. So I think if we drill straight down, uh, we'll we'll find some lava, obviously. Okay. Is that, is that how you spend your turn, Ishan? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the cause an action? No, no, I don't do that. Mere speculation, talking is a free action. <laughs> so another approach that gives um, less narrative control to the players is to... Uh, go ahead and describe a few of those details in the room and mark it on the map uh, and then promptly use one of them. So have the enemies in the room uh, interact with the environment in a way that hurts the players so it sets their minds in motion um, to how to use the environment to hurt them right back. You know, it it doesn't cost much to have an orc uh, bull rush a brazier and push it over onto one of the PCs versus running up and using multi-attack you know you can do the exact same mechanical outcome um, but you've now described it as interacting with the environment and they'll think in the same terms yeah or you know it even potentially gives that orc an area attack that it didn't have before right yeah (laughs) and and describe it evocatively right like it's not just he pushes over the brazier uh it's it's that he sends red hot embers uh flying across your body uh make a dexterity save then this serves two purposes. One, it's showing the players that they can interact with the environment. Um, and ideally, it's giving, it's getting them to start thinking about what other things in here can we use. Because now this brazier is tipped over, right? Right. Maybe there's another brazier. They can do that as well. But it also changes the environment. Now we have hot embers on the floor. Is the floor wooden? Right. Or is that difficult terrain or can I tackle somebody into the embers or whatever? Right. right. Is, is this a hazardous terrain now? Right. What's going on? Yep. Of course it could just encourage them to mimic what you're doing rather than coming up, come up with something imaginative. But I think in general, that's fine. You know, if, if they're like, okay, great, I can use the brazier. Perfect. Right. Uh, just make sure you put a brazier in the next room and, <laughs> and leave it upright <laughs> for them to tip over or something akin to a brazier. Right. 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 Something else standing with fire in it. <laughs> a bonfire, I think. <laughs> Tip over the bonfire. That works, right? And then sort of a variation of that, too, is um, if you if you borrow the aspects from Fate, 
Um, these are meant to describe elements in a scene that can be interacted with um, for a bonus. But if you describe those elements in the room and then write them on note cards in bold letters and place them face up on the table so that everyone can see them, um, it reminds the players that that's there, right? And it's sort of a tactile thing they can pick up and look at and feel um, as a reminder rather than just sort of a detail that's ticked off in the back of their mind. Yeah, this is nice because it doesn't require the use of a map. You know, you don't have to place a little brazier icon. You don't have to draw something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very easy to add to when someone come up comes up with something later in the encounter. Yeah, so if if a player asks, um, okay, so there's th- this thing is here, but uh, is there a torch on the wall? Well, the answer is yes, and then write torch on a note card and add that to the middle pile, right? So they're interacting with that pile to encourage them to look there and find things. Yeah, that's way easier than if you already have like a pre-printed map or a map that you've drawn. If you didn't draw the torch, it's tough to be like, oh yeah, no, no, there's there's a torch there. Yeah, torch. Or, you know, of course it's there. I just didn't think it was relevant until now. (laughs) Yeah, it's not dark in here. Where do you think the light's coming from? Right. (laughs) Uh, And then it reminds your players. You know, they're staring down either at the map or they're you know looking at each other, looking down at their dice, and they can see these note cards right there, being like, hey, there's a torch in here. Right. So that's how you uh, put Chekhov's gun on the wall. Now, how do you make sure that your players use Chekhov's gun in the third act? Right. What What are some ways to make sure that players use the scenery? Have the orc shoot them. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. It's a double-barreled shotgun. <laughs> Let NPCs use the scenery. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that is one of my favorite things in swashbuckling type movies, right? You pull a sword off the wall get well there's another sword on the opposite yeah, there's wall always obviously. two swords yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're always crossed <laughs> or um a, sort of a staple of kung fu martial arts movies especially sillier ones is like the rack of weapons in the in the like training hall right yeah <laughs> grab one that doesn't work hold on let me get another one you know you you grab the pole arm it gets uh cut in half by a sword so then you grab another and it gets cut in half and then finally you grab a metal one and it, and it dents the sword <laughs> All right, so one obvious way to do this is to explain the mechanics of the interaction. So, you know, you're having enemies or NPCs use the scenery. You know, the kobold ducks behind the sarcophagus. They can't see them anymore. And you just make it a mechanical conversation. You, what's your passive perception? Okay, well, that's not high enough, so the kobold is hidden from you. Yeah, and then the next round, right, the kobold returns, but springs up 20 feet because she was hidden so guess what your players can do that too right and now you've demonstrated that um using the scenery provides mechanical benefit right that that 20 foot move of movement and the uh say you know it's a sneak attack or attack with advantage or whatever right like oh i get it if i use the scenery i get to do more stuff that feeds into sort of the whole point here, right, is incentivize the players to use scenery, right? To, to not only look at what's on their character sheet, but what, look at what's around them in the environment um, by giving them some type of mechanical incentive. Yeah, because if there is no mechanical benefit, then all you really all you really end up doing is sort of trying to entice your players to be more descriptive right. in, in what they do. But as we've seen after a while, it sort of wears on you to describe exactly how you swing your sword. You know, eventually you just say, I mean, I hit it. Right. <laughs> and and that, the same thing is going to happen with scenery unless there is some mechanical benefit or, or advantage or not even necessarily benefit, right? But mechanical consequence. 
So, for example, 5th edition D&D has uh, inspiration. If someone does something cool or something foolhardy, you can award them inspiration and maybe they get advantage on uh, another roll later. Yeah, we mentioned Phoenix and uh, Phoenix Dawn Command and Fate. Like um, Phoenix lets you play an extra card when you use an element from the torch, and um, Fate, I think, gives you like a plus two bonus on the roll when you use an aspect. Um, those are the sort of little things that are like, cool, you're leveraging it. It's a little bit easier. So along those same lines, you want to make using the scenery uh, at least comparable, but maybe even slightly better than just doing the normal thing that the character does all the time. So, like, if the fighter does 1d10 plus strength with their sword, uh, it's not an incentive if pushing over the statue does 1d6 damage. Right. Like, well, I should have just hit it with my sword then. Why did you trick me into doing this? Right, and I didn't have to make an athletics check to hit it with my sword. Right. Like, I have a chance of failure of not pushing this statue over. It really needs to be worth my time. Right, right. So, you know, in that case... (laughs) 1d12 or 2d6 plus strength it's not going to upset anybody but it's a little bit different so it feels like a better thing Mm -hmm. or maybe it has the possibility of hitting multiple creatures right which is not something a fighter sword swing can typically do right um the other thing you can do here is is leave it the same but role play advantageous reactions and and narrate them in in a way that um illustrates that benefit so you know if you do push a brazier over into an ogre he might spend some time wiping the ashes from his eyes on his turn. So instead of making a multi-attack, he only makes a single attack. Mm -hmm. And if you describe that as, um, you know, last round you saw him attack twice, this round he spends some time, he has to to wipe the ashes from his eyes, he's only making one attack. You go, okay, cool, I did a little less damage, but he didn't get an extra attack. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah, and you can be very overt with this, you know. Okay, because he spent time wiping his eyes, he only gets one attack. Right. And it doesn't have to happen every time, right? Like that's a that could be a really big benefit in one fight that might not occur in a second fight, and that's fine. The player knew that and was taking the chance. Yeah, you don't necessarily want to be like, "Hey, the best thing to do here is to ash lock the ogre." Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what's broken in this universe? <laughs> Ashes. <laughs> I will say one easy way to get players to use scenery though is fire. Like the brazier tips over. Is the ogre on fire now? Yeah, f- uh, fire and falling are the two yeah, uh-huh. the two easy ones because uh, yeah, like the easiest way to notice that trees exist is to throw someone from one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you're in a forest, right? Did I not describe that? Yeah. Hold on, let me write down <laughs> trees on this note card. Low hanging branches. Right. Hold on, I'm also writing on the same note card on fire. Right. Okay. <laughs> I will use that in my intimidate check. Right. <laughs> Um, another way, I, I'm just brainstorming, but another cool thing you can do if you're in like a cold environment is have um, a little bit of cold damage if you leave the arc of a flame, right? So you have to stay where it's warm mm. or else the environment, like the bitter wind kind of hurts you a little bit. Uh, so it costs you something to move uh, between warm spots. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the enemy spellcaster uh, packs some AOE effects. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is it worth it? To stay near the fire, but then also get fireballed? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And how far can I throw a bucket of water? (laughs) Because I would like to extinguish his bonfire, please. (laughs) I love the idea of you throw the bucket of water, right? And it doesn't put out the fire because it freezes freezes in midair, right? But it hits him in the face. (laughs) Or it's just, you know, thousands of tiny sharp needles. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
so all of this is to say, encourage the rule of cool. Um, because none of these things are really covered interactions in just about any game I can think of. Um, and, and one way to do that is to use the checks and, and um, dice rolls to give cherries to the players, not to invalidate their actions. Um, the example I think of is a rogue leaping to the chandelier to like swing across the room. Like some, some GMs are like, okay, cool. So make an acrobatics check. Oh, you failed. Well, you don't do that. Yeah. Also you roll the one you fall on your ass and now you're prone. Like, all right. So I guess I'll just walk across the table next time. <laughs> like, right. It wasn't worth it. I did literally nothing yeah, worse than nothing. Right. Um, so, so for me, I would say, yeah, roll the acrobatics check. Uh, if you fail, you still swing from the chandelier, but you land awkwardly, and it just costs you your normal movement. So it was just a descriptive element, and that's fine. Uh, but if you succeed, you roll gracefully to your feet, and that was free movement, so you can move a little bit further. Right, or you were able to move through an enemy's space because you jumped over their head or whatever. Right, exactly. You you avoid the attack of opportunity. Fine. Or you make an attack on the way. Who cares? Yeah, and this is... a. A great tactic just in general uh, as a GM, if you're dealing with new players or I know particularly young players, what happens a lot is you have someone who isn't seasoned at the game. And so they're not thinking, oh, I'm just going to swing my sword at it because like mechanically in terms of the action economy, that's the best thing to do, right? They're like, I want to do the cool thing. But I don't know. I've been at a table multiple times where literally this thing happens. Someone is like, oh, I'm going to swing from the chandelier. And everyone at the table goes, uh, don't, like, don't do that. Right, it's not worth it. Just, <laughs> just don't do that. And it, and it sucks because you want to be able to do the cool, awesome thing. So, yeah, try not to punish it. They're already taking the risk of rolling the die. Right. Um, actually, in the game we played, uh, in the Let's Kill Strahd game we played, um, we had a flying enemy, and I tried to do that. I tried to use an acrobatics check mm. to like leap up to hit it. Right. And and it was like. All right, no, normally you cannot leap 20 feet in the air, monk, <laughs> halfling monk. <laughs> like, but make a good athletics check, and yeah, maybe you can get an attack. Um, and you didn't get to it. I didn't. But you didn't then take, you know, 3d6 falling damage. Right, I didn't then fall into the pit that it was hovering over either. Right. You know, it was like, cool, no, you just, you, you don't get to invalidate its flight this time. And, you know, it's not like you would have been able to do anything else to it anyway. Exactly. Right. So that, that prevents the situation where you're like just standing around and like, I don't know what to do. Right. So I will do nothing now. Thank you. Another thing. Um, and, and this actually is a good example of that. Um, ignore those like ticky tacky interaction rules um, for like, if it's order of action or if it's like um, you need two hands to do this thing. Like if it's a cool action, and it makes the game more fun for that player. Like, err on the side of just letting the cinematic moment happen. Um, like, yes, you could require two hands to push over a brazier, or you could just ram it with your shoulder and knock it over. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Yeah, kick it. <laughs> right. Because that's what you do with braziers. Oh, yeah. You kick them over. Right. <laughs> the same way that you uh, that you treat emissaries of... Um, <laughs> the Persians. The Persians. <laughs> So probably the best advice for encouraging your players to be interactive with scenery is to make sure that they know that you're on their side because you are essentially asking your players to take a risk 
roll a die, try something unexpected. You know, the the mechanics of swinging your sword or flinging a spell are codified in the rules. Mm -hmm. But it's your judgment determining whether they can do this cool thing that is essentially improvisational. Yep. So if they think that you're always trying to screw them over every time they do something that isn't exactly described in the rules, they are not going to do it. Because they'll just say, well, that's not worth the risk. Right. You know, this is weighted toward failure. Right. And players players always avoid things that are weighted toward failure. In the long term, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do the math of, well, there's only a 33% chance for me to hit this creature's AC. I will do something different. I will do anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will do something that has higher odds of succeeding, even if it's less beneficial, because I hate failure. Yeah. Unless I got a free attack in which case i'll take a 0.1 chance of hitting you right. know <laughs> yeah um i also think it's important that you convey you're on the player side uh as a gm so one way of handling the chandelier swing is to say oh great another chandelier swing well roll your acrobatics let's see what happens the other is to say oh that's awesome let's make that happen roll acrobatics right um you know or like oh, that attack is really creative. Like, I, I want to see what happens when you land that. You have advantage. Um, make make it, make them feel like their creativity is being rewarded, not just with, you know, an extra die or whatever it is, but also with your engagement with what they're doing. Yeah, and, you know, of course, make sure it is uh, um, them interacting with the scenery or the environment or or the story in a way that, doesn't seem like it's just trying to get the extra bonus you know like it's not <laughs> yeah. oh i do a somersault in midair and i parkour around the table and then i attack do i get advantage right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think i think you kind of started running into this with edge of the empire uh with the like lingering advantages where it's like i i don't have any more creative ways to spend these i guess everyone just has a better chance next time here take a blue die yeah exactly yeah. I, I, we just keep moving this blue die around the table right yeah i which yeah it can it can boil down to that but you also need to get into uh then as the gm of like encouraging like okay yeah you've got four advantages like what do you want to happen here it happens right like you get to define the next step of this scene because you've got a lot to do his head explodes in molten gold <laughs> Okay, so let's say you are trying to populate an empty room. What are some easy go-to effects or items or keywords that you might throw into a room? So anything that can facilitate or challenge movement. So any source of difficult terrain or, um, you know, uh, a, a bridge to cross a chasm, like those types of things immediately are evocative and fun. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily need to be one particular feature, right? It could be we're in a dungeon in the jungle. The walls are covered in creeping vines. So if you have a good enough athletics check, you can climb on those vines slowly across the wall. Right. And, you know, maybe that's because you want to avoid the lava below, or maybe it's just an easier way for your fighter to, like, maneuver in combat. Right. I would be careful with challenging movement, though. Sometimes that can get a little slapsticky or pratfally, especially something like ice. Yeah, I mean, falling down on ice is uh, entertaining the first time and annoying 
every subsequent time. <laughs> yeah. So it might be something like if you move at half speed, no checks required. Right, right. Or, um, you know, even like partial submersion, which just di- just regular difficult terrain, right, mixes up the battlefield. Mm-hmm. I think that happened in uh, Let's Kill Strahd, actually, is it was four feet of water, which means the dwarf and the halfling had a problem. Well, the halfling didn't. He rode on the barbarian's back. <laughs> exactly, right? Uh, the barbarian is terrain. Right. <laughs> Would you have considered him terrain if the room wasn't full of water? Uh, well, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have bared the indignity of riding his back. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing to think about is either hazardous or beneficial terrain. So uh, lava is a good example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I especially love terrains that are either hazardous or beneficial to both the players and their enemies. So lava, obviously bad for everybody if you get thrown into it, you know, except maybe the fire elemental that you're fighting. Right, right. Uh, Or beneficial terrain, something like uh, Bloodstone, where creatures standing in this area crit on a 19 or 20. Right. Well, okay, I want to be over there because the bad guys are over there and I want to crit, but I also don't want to be over there. And get crit by the bad guys. Right. (laughs) Right. So uh, archers, (laughs) we take that hill, you stand there. Right. Um, And then the way to spice this up over time is to make those effects move around the map Mm -hmm. right um you know if uh if there's a like uh, a magical circle of consecration um that is moving around right uh if you're standing in it maybe you get that beneficial effect or you get a little bit of healing or resistance to damage um it becomes a a a scramble to get in there first (laughs) and keep the enemy out of it because you know whoever whoever has that for that round has a relative advantage yeah it becomes like a capture the flag right where the flag is teleporting around the room and the goal is to murder the other people is that not <laughs> oh that's like is that not no, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> i like how that presents multiple goals for the encounter it is okay ultimately we need to like put down the other side but sometimes the most expedient way to do that is to leave them alone and find our way to the beneficial area or uh make sure that we control a a certain part of the terrain. Right. Yep. You've also got patterned effects. Um, These are things that require your players to pay attention to the rounds or maybe the initiative order uh, because something is happening in a prescribed fashion that they're going to be able to predict. Maybe that's swinging blades. Uh, It's the fire swamp where you hear the three spurts and then a gout of flame. Right, right. Uh, This is the factory scene. You know, like where uh, there's a conveyor belt. We know the pattern of the conveyor belt. We know that at this point in the conveyor belt... It goes through the stamper. That's right. (laughs) There's always the stamper. Right. (laughs) You will be flattened if you remain underneath it. And with things like that, you know, you give maybe even a round or two where things are moving. No one is standing on the conveyor belt because you haven't been knocked onto it yet. Right. Right. But you are telegraphing long before the stamper shows up that this is what happens if you're not careful. Exactly. And so, like, it's not your fault if someone gets flattened. Right. Uh, This also gives a reminder that there are sets of rules that might exist in your game that aren't just dealing damage in combat, right? Like grapple and shove rules and those types of things. If your game handles them well, great. If it doesn't handle them well, uh, fix them first. Yeah. It is one thing I liked uh, in Xanathar's was the section on complex traps. Where you have, you know, for example, blades, sights that come out of the ground, um, always in the same pattern, right? Because they're built into the ground, Mm -hmm. always at particular times during the round. 
uh, but you can avoid them if you want, but you can also attack them right. so they don't come out again. Right. Or you can maneuver enemies into their way. Right. Another thing to keep in mind is uh, lighting in shadow. So advantages that could be gained for characters that have um, night vision goggles or dark vision or true sight, those types of things, um, or characters that operate better when they're hidden, right? So the rogue or um, assassin type characters. And your NPCs. Oh, yeah, reinforcements, they were in the dark. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And this doesn't necessarily need to be literal light and shadow, right? It can be concealed areas of the map, whether that's too far away for you to see, whether it's the floor below or above you, or, you know, the seven sarcophagi stacked up. (laughs) You don't know what's inside. (laughs) Definitely don't want to open them and find out. (laughs) And then lastly, um, some sort of countdown. Countdown to what? Doesn't matter. Nope. <laughs> sure doesn't. <laughs> doesn't ever need to happen. Right. Uh, in some settings, this can be a literal countdown. So like the uh, the timer on the bomb, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to know what the bomb is. If it looks like a bomb and it has a countdown, you're going to try and defuse it, right? Yeah. Or, you know, the braziers get brighter this round. Right. Why did that happen? Right, right. Don't know. I'm kicking it over. <laughs> or, uh, or or the opposite, right? As, as the braziers are draining, some other light is growing uh, in the sarcophagus, for example. Right. Oh, oh that's bad. <laughs> this seems bad. Uh, you did the same thing to us in Morning Glory with a, uh, like a sphere of spell storing, mm-hmm. right? And as spells were cast, it would continue whining or uh yeah like, higher and like higher pitch higher pitched mm-hmm. yeah that like eventually reached the crescendo. And, the, and the little green balls were filling, filling up, up on it yeah right yeah so <laughs> it wasn't it was i guess it was a count up but it was still indicating like uh escalating tension right mm-hmm. um, and and truthfully you don't need to know what the outcome is going to be uh almost almost no one will say yeah let's find out right <laughs> if someone really needs to know it's everybody dies right, right yeah <laughs> So I think in conclusion, um, you know, adding scenery and adding to the scenery really can enrich your combats. Um, but keep in mind that lots of games have um, lots of rules that players are already just struggling to grasp. You know, like as a GM, you often have much more rules mastery than your players. So um, don't think of it as an indictment of yourself. If the players continue to try and do the cool things on their sheet that they bought and chose versus trying to get the cool things that you're introducing through scenery. Yeah. um, If your paladin player says, I run up and smite it, that's kind of awesome, actually. Yeah. For that player, like, oh, my God, I'm going to roll so many dice. They're not bored because they're not interacting with the terrain. Right. I just got my third level spells. I'm going to fireball something. Yeah. Oh, that's (laughs) happening. You know, like, (laughs) I I was never not going to fireball. Um, don't take that personally, but you know, there are definitely ways to encourage them and remind them that there's, uh, there's things going on outside of their sheets. Yeah. Sometimes the best thing that you can offer someone who just got fireball is the room is filled with wooden furniture yeah, targets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everything in here looks like it could burn. All right. Do you hear that? Ishan? Um, upcast fireball, tiny room ashes. And once again, we're rerolling. <laughs> Let's move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Zen's Carnet, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. 
And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. So this week in the Credit to Creation Forge, we are dipping into Xanathar's Guide again, and we are building the Whirling Dervish. Now, what is a Whirling Dervish? Uh, well, it's one of those archetypes that is kind of based in history and also kind of based in racism a little <laughs> right, bit. <laughs> yeah, like, the the Arab warriors, like yeah, they like danced across. Yeah, the... Sufi Sufi warriors. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, the battle dance. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were like the wind flowing through the battlefield. So much like the paladin or the druid or the samurai, we are looking at sort of the uh, fictional archetype here: the warrior who uses two swords maybe scimitars, um, and attacks many times very quickly and moves very uh, gracefully across the battlefield. Uh, Someone who can be anywhere that you need them to be and, you know, murder any monster you need them to murder. All right. So what's the build? Battlemaster Fighter 12, College of Swords Bard 5, Swashbuckler Rogue 3. So fighter, we know we're going to get three base attacks, uh, guessing the defensive fighting style. Yeah, because uh, from Bard, we're going to get two weapon fighting. Right. Um, Then we'll have five superiority dice, and we'll know seven maneuvers, which gives us uh, lots of additional things we can do with our attacks in combat. Uh, Yeah, the Dervish is supposed to be like a master of swordsmanship, and I think the maneuvers uh, emulate that really well. Then from Swashbuckler, we're going to be able to avoid opportunity attacks when we uh, slash an enemy. Which is handy because it uh, doesn't require bonus action, so we can use that second uh, offhand attack. We'll get Charisma to Initiative, which lets us get into the fray much more quickly than everyone else. Uh, you'll sneak attack uh, with very, very easy qualification uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> for an additional 2d6 damage uh, per round. And you'll snag two Expertise. Which will, of course, be animal handling. Of course, yeah. And something. (laughs) And then uh, the whole reason we're able to do this build is Xanathar's Guide's uh, College of Swords Bard. So this will get us level three spells, an additional two expertises, and the Jack of All Trades ability, which gives you half of your proficiency bonus when you're not proficient in a roll. And then at level three, you're getting Blade Flourish, which is really the cornerstone of the subclass. Uh, it lets you spend an inspiration die to gain, to, you roll it and you add extra damage to an attack. And then uh, you can do one of three things. You can increase your AC as well. Uh, you can do some extra damage to uh, an enemy that's adjacent to the one that you hit, or you can shove. Now, in and of themselves, these are not uh, huge things, but you can do them on top of your Battlemaster maneuvers because you can spend a superiority die and uh, an inspiration die at the same time on the same attack. Right. Uh, which really lets you uh, knock out really big individual hits or do multiple effects on the same attack. Right. In addition, when you take the attack action, you'll get an extra 10 feet of movement, which makes you uh, quite mobile. So in terms of Battlemaster maneuvers, um, I love the ones that let you um, sort of debuff opponents. Because if you think about it, you have the ability to move around the battlefield and attack multiple opponents. But that's usually not the best thing to do. You usually want to focus fire in terms of damage. So while you can pile on the damage, you, you can also sort of pile on the status effects. So, for example, if you use Disarming Attack on the first creature... 
they're not really that much of a threat anymore, especially if you kick them five feet away yep. from their weapon, right. which they're not going to be able to then uh, grab right away on the turn. So you can actually move on to another creature and attack them and do something totally different because the first one is now disarmed. Right. Or uh, knocking prone with tripping attack. Yeah, exactly. Um, I really like things like goading attack. Uh, because then they, with a fail a wisdom saving throw, they have disadvantage on all attack rolls against targets other than you. But you're like 40 feet away on the other side of the battlefield, and they can't get to you now. Right, right. In terms of leveling up, I think I would probably start Bard 5, then do Rogue, and then into Battlemaster. But there's kind of not a wrong way to build it as long as you get to extra attack. Yeah, extra attack, and then... Your other breakpoint is Bard 5 because that's when your Inspiration Dice refresh on a short rest instead of a long rest. Right. But yeah, this is one of those, uh, I don't know, unique builds for us where you can build it according to the character. Yeah, you just build up from your backstory, basically, what makes the most sense. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't start Swashbuckler Fighter and then move into Bard. Mm Mm-hmm. Especially if, you know, right now you currently have a Swashbuckler Fighter. Right. And (laughs) you'd like to add Xanathars. (laughs) It works great. So, who is your Whirling Dervish? My Whirling Dervish is the combat mechanic of the party. Her job is not necessarily to take down the biggest threat, although, you know, she can if required, if she's stuck alone. Um, She can obviously lay on the hurt with a bunch of attacks and a bunch of extra damage on each of those attacks. Uh, But her job is to flit around the battlefield and basically take apart the equipment or to debuff somehow the the enemy. So the first one, she like flips their sword out of their hand, moves on. Obviously, they're not getting an attack of opportunity because... um, Well, they they can punch for one damage. (laughs) She's got fancy footwork, no opportunity attack. (laughs) Uh, The next one, she throws some pocket sand in their eye. Right. And they're taking disadvantage on other attacks. The, The other one, she taunts as she moves along. And, you know, by the time she's taken four attacks dealt a bunch of damage but she's essentially hamstrung half of the opponents uh and of course she's going first because she has charisma to initiative so now everyone else attacks uh, on a much more sure footing she's the one who is basically like a, a melee wizard okay yeah i like the idea of like spinning through combat like slices that guy's belt his pants fall down <laughs> right <laughs> like slaps that horse on the rump and it runs <laughs> right pulls hat down over your eyes exactly. moves on. yeah, yeah. uh-huh okay <laughs> great <laughs> i think i'm gonna take expertise in performance as well perfect <laughs> what about your whirling dervish so uh doesn't have to be quite a slapstick, but I suppose it could be. Uh, my Whirling Dervish is a veteran of some of the most frantic and fraught and uh, chaotic melees that ever come about in a small uh, frontier town uh, rife with adventurers. A bar fight. Love it. So, yeah, I mean, you got to keep your head on a swivel. You got to move through a crowd, crowd quickly. You've got to kind of hit those kidney punches and those types of things to eliminate the immediate threat and uh, make sure that you and your friends can get out of the melee without uh, much more than a few bruises and a scratch. So, when you put a sword in her hand, it's not a whole lot different. <laughs> it's just that now she plays for blood. So, you're going to take Tavern Brawler? 
Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just backstory. Right. <laughs> not going to waste a fee. <laughs> not a professional tavern brawler, mind you. <laughs> It's just I just dabble. She punches for one damage all the time. Right. <laughs> all right. Uh, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and say thank you to our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. Uh, you can also find the Character Creation Forge Codex, which was unlocked by our patrons. Uh, that includes all of the Character Creation Forge builds we have ever made, documented. And we also have some of our backstory from the Morning Glory campaign and some other stuff that we've posted up there as well. That's yeah. available to everybody, not just patrons. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you do, we'll read it on the air. Like this one by Virus355. This is great advice and stories. Five stars. I started listening to these guys around when I started DMing, and the advice and ideas I've picked up from the show have been amazing. I'm on episode 115, so I can assure you there is a lot of quality to be found here. I think it's a bit terrifying that there are people out there who have been DMing only while they have been listening to our advice, which is dubious. I hope that they've solicited other people's advice oh, as well. Please do. Please do. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know about the quality to be found, but there are 115 episodes of quantity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about collaborative storytelling. And in the character creation forge? Well, thanks to Joshua Perry on Twitter, we are going to be building... Prince Shizor. Did I did I say it right? Uh Shizor. 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 Um I think that is Mary Sue Eleven. <laughs> this is uh <laughs> I, Yeah, I think I think Josh listens to System Mastery. They just finished Expounded Universe of Shadows of the Empire. Uh Prince Shizor is the main villain from that. He's a green reptile guy. A sexy green reptile guy. sexy green reptile guy. Apparently all those reptiles are super sexy. Right. All right, that's it for episode 123 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. All right, can you hear me? I can hear you. How about me? How we doing? Yep. Yeah, I, um... So I had one of the worst experiences watching a movie the other week. It was like the free stars weekend. And I was up <laughs> I was up late at like two in the morning watching uh, Varsity Blues. Um, that's a football movie, right? Yeah, it's a football movie. Okay. So at the end of the movie, they like kick out the coach who's, you know, not a very player friendly coach. And like they're leading the comeback to make it to the state playoffs or whatever. And then it just dies in the middle of it. And then like the screen pops up and it's like, your stars free preview has ended. If you would like to subscribe, no. like, please click here. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I know how this movie ends. I've seen it a hundred times, but like, you really got me by the balls here, stars. Anyway, I'm not a star subscriber. Did you iTunes the rest of it? I No, I just went to bed. I was so depressed I couldn't even tweet.